Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray together as we stand. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do indeed uh, give you thanks that you are a God who speaks, uh, that you, uh, who is king over all creation, king over us uh, this day, uh, would speak to us out of your kindness. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would cause us to be very humble uh, before your word, to listen and to see in your word uh, your wonderful son. Uh, We pray this for his glory's sake. Amen. We're uh, continuing our series uh, in Luke's Gospel. We're up to chapter 7 that uh, Peter read for us uh, just before, page uh, 1035 of the Church Bibles. Uh, Worth turning to that now as we look at those first 10 verses together. And just as uh, you're finding uh, Luke chapter 7, as we begin, let me ask you, do you have a, a hero of the faith? Uh, Someone whose faith in Christ Jesus amazes you and not in some sort of showy way uh, but genuinely uh, causes you to consider their steps, their steps as a follower of the Lord Jesus and want to copy them. Uh, Do you have a hero of the faith? Perhaps uh, one uh, here, someone in this church family whom you admire, not again in that sort of uh, showy way but you admire the way that uh, God has changed their life. Or perhaps it's someone in the past, some hero of the faith who was significant uh, in your own uh, growth as a Christian. I've had uh, a number of heroes of the faith and I'll tell you about uh, one of them uh, later that came to my mind as I uh, read this passage this week. But I suspect I'm not alone in having, uh, if you like, uh, heroes of the faith who have inspired our own walk. If you are someone like that, if you have a hero of the faith, perhaps in the past or now, what is it about their faith? That is so great. What is it about their faith that is so inspiring, uh, that so challenges you? It's a hard question, isn't it, to, uh, to nail down exactly what it is about them that is so uh, amazing. And I suspect that's because uh, when we speak of faith, uh, one with another as, as Christians, or even speak of faith with those outside the Christian community, there are very many different views of what we mean when we say the word faith. Uh, Faith is often misconceived. Uh, For some, uh, faith means uh, having no doubts, uh, no dark nights, uh, no failure. That's true faith. Or for others, faith is a a bit like a fuel, it's a, a resource. The more you have, the better your life will be. You just need more faith. Uh, For others, faith is a a personal matter, a private matter. There are matters of the world and work and politics and then there are matters of faith and uh, they should never be joined. And yet for others, perhaps uh, people looking in on the Christian community, faith is, uh, well, wishful thinking. Uh, Wishful, hopeful thinking, but ultimately no more than like a a cardboard shield against the storms of life. It's uh, perhaps admirable from a distance but ultimately useless. And so what is it, this uh, faith that Christians speak of so often? Now, what is genuine faith, great faith? Uh, It's an important question because uh, if you read the Scriptures again and again, we are told that it is only by faith that we can stand before God. Only by faith we are justified by the living God. And so we want to get it right, don't we? 
And that is for me what's so helpful about the passage in front of us this morning, Luke 7. For here we meet a man who receives this commendation from Jesus. You see it there in verse 9. It is really the focus of this passage. I tell you, he says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Here is one with great faith, says Jesus. Here is one whose faith is so amazing that even Jesus is marvelling at it. And what we will see in these first 10 verses of Luke 7 is what genuine faith actually looks like. It will remove from us the speculation of what faith is about and we will see that perhaps most clearly in the two statements that this centurion will make. Uh, The first you see in verse 6 is this, I am not worthy. And the second, verse 7, just say the word. Uh, They're the two elements of faith that we'll be exploring together this morning because what Luke 7 will teach us is this, that great faith is approaching Jesus empty-handed but humbly expectant. Great faith is approaching Jesus empty-handed but humbly expectant. That's what we'll see together in these verses. So let's have a look at them together. And as we do, uh, if you've not been here in recent weeks, we need to keep in mind uh, the context in which these verses come, the context of Luke's gospel up to this point. If you have been here, you remember back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we had Jesus announcing the whole purpose of his mission, that he had been sent by the Father in heaven to proclaim good news to the poor. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, to proclaim grace to this world, a a way back to relationship with God, Uh, not born out of merit, uh, but purely from grace. A way back for even outsiders, a way back for those who have a debt before God, the debt of sin. Uh, The way back through forgiveness that he would win for them on the cross. And all the way through these chapters that we've explored, uh, Luke 4 through 6, we've seen, if you like, a a series of days when this favour that Jesus had come to announce was was seen, was delivered to person after person who needed that favour. And so now as we turn to Luke 7, we are again going to witness another day of favour. We will see in these verses another miracle, but the focus isn't on the miracle at all. In fact, we're given very little detail about the miracle. The focus, as I said earlier, is is on verse 9, where it's not the crowds this time who are amazed. That's been what's happened in Luke's gospel so far. Jesus does things and the crowds are amazed. Now it is Jesus who is amazed at this centurion's faith, this great faith. And so what is it that's so great about it? The two things I mentioned before, here's the first of them. It is approaching Jesus empty-handed. Great faith is to echo in our hearts the centurion's words in verse 6, I am not worthy. If you look there in verse 6, there are words spoken by a second delegation that this man has sent to Jesus, this centurion. He keeps sending these delegations to speak on his behalf before Jesus. And what do we know of this centurion who we meet in these verses? Well, three things uh, we're told about him in verses 1 to 10. The first is this. Uh, He is a man in need. Uh, You see that in verse 2. A centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Now here is a man in desperate need. But like uh, Naaman the Syrian who we met uh, back in Luke 4, that powerful commander from uh, Syria, this is a man who is not used to being in need. 
Uh, in the world's economy, this centurion is not a needy person. We'll read in these uh, verses that he had the financial capacity to build a synagogue. He's not a needy person. He has wealth and power and respect and authority. And Luke is in the habit of doing this, isn't it? As we've gone through, he's in the habit of showing his people at different ends of the human spectrum, those who seem to have it all and those who seem to have absolutely nothing. And yet, here is this success story, worldly speaking, wealth, power, respect. But in this passage, he is simply a man in need. His servant is sick and about to die. His servant, whom he loves, who he esteems, Uh, Even with all his wealth and power and connections, he's coming up short of resources to do battle with death. He's a man in need, but more than that, he's a man on the outside. Now have a look at verse 3. He's not one of God's people. That's why in verse 3 he has to send this delegation of Jews to speak to uh, God's son. He can't do it himself. He's not one of them. He's got no access to the blessings that God's people are promised. Uh, He's like one of us. An outsider, one of the Gentiles, one described in Ephesians as without God and without hope in the world. He's an outsider and yet he dares to ask for favour. And why not ask? Because the third thing now we learn about this man, this centurion, is that he has heard of Jesus. I heard, no doubt, of this news that Jesus is going through all the towns proclaiming news of favour. And news of a way back even for outsiders. And so he's heard of this favour. And now he will ask for it. And so over the course of this passage, he will send these two delegations with this same plea for favour, please heal my servant. And each of these delegations will give us a picture of what empty-handed faith does and doesn't look like. Now the first delegation are going to help us see what it doesn't look like. Have a look with me in verses 3 and 4. The centurion has sent this Jewish delegation to ask Jesus for this simple but big request, come and save my servant from death. Now we're not told uh, in these verses that beyond this specific request uh, how it instructed them to uh, represent him before Jesus. But have a look in verse 4, here's their approach. We're told they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. They said, this man deserves to have you do this. Here, for me, is the antithesis of empty-handed approach to Jesus. Here is this approach which says the exact opposite. Here is a man, they say, the centurion, who is worthy of your favour. He's worthy. He deserves it. Three things, again, that commend this man's worthiness. The first uh, we saw implied in verse 2, he's a good man. He's worthy. He values his servant's life highly. And that is a remarkable thing, isn't it, in the time? In a time when the treatment of slaves and servants, there was no regulations for it, they were dispensable. Their lives were inconsequential. Here is a centurion who seems committed to the good of his servant, uh, so much so that he would uh, embarrass himself by sending delegation after delegation to Jesus just for his servant. He's he's a good man. And I suspect here in this uh, worthiness, this claim to worthiness because of his goodness, there's an echo Uh, for us in the way many consider God can be approached. I'm worthy because, well, I'm good. One of um, the uh, common experiences I have in meeting with uh, families who are going through the the whole situation of uh, preparing for the funeral of a loved one, whether it be a family member or a friend, 
is hearing the almost universal uh, refrain about this family member or friend, citing the goodness of the person. And more often than not, there are many reasons to cite the goodness of the person, good deeds, great moments in their lives, but these are the things that are held up to cite their worthiness before their maker, whom whom they have just met. We assume that uh, such good deeds will make them worthy before God. I suspect here in a gathering like this there will be some here this morning who are comfortable with the concept as you approach the thought of meeting your maker that your own moral record will be worthy enough, that you are good enough to approach him. Worthy. Uh, In the passage we have two other reasons cited for this man's worthiness. They're really two clear examples of his good deeds, why he is so worthy of God's favour. The first of them you see in verse 5. He is worthy because he loves God's people. Again, it's possible, isn't it, to feel confident to approach God because of your proximity to God's people. I wonder if that's you this morning. Perhaps you've never fully thrown your lot in with Jesus, that is you don't submit your life to him, you don't rely on him for life and breath and everything else, he is not your Lord. But you're happy to be around Christian things, Uh, maybe even a regular attendee at uh, church services and other gatherings. Uh, You're around the Christian community, not quite part of it but around it. Again, uh, in uh, funeral visits, when asked, as I often ask uh, family members or friends, uh, did your loved one have a faith? Uh, Usually it is attendance that is cited. Uh, This man is worthy because he loves God's people. He goes to church, he's on the coffee rotor, heck, he's been on the PCC. He's worthy. And then there's this one, the third claim to his worthiness. Again, verse 5, he is worthy because... He built the synagogue. It's perhaps the most crude but the most obviously meritorious line on his CV. He's one of us, Jesus. He's invested in us. He's paid his way. He's worthy. I met a man in recent times who viewed being part of this community as as a matter of membership. You pay by subs, paying for the upkeep, for the heating and the lighting as one would a golf club. Is this... This sort of idea, I reckon it's the sort of idea of worthiness that makes it so dangerous for Christians to appeal for financial support for Christian endeavours from unbelievers in the parish or beyond, perpetuating the myth that giving in this way is meritorious before God. That's what the Jewish elders have done here. Approaching Jesus and citing the centurion's CV and said, he deserves this Jesus, you owe him. It's an approach to worthiness before God that sees God as our debtor. You owe me this, God. I'm good enough. And we as believers, I think, are not immune from such thinking, are we? I suspect for many of us, uh, myself included, we feel that the longer we've been a Christian, that perhaps when I was first a Christian I was a debtor before God, a sinner, but now I'm paying my own way. We see that in the way we measure the health or otherwise of our faith and the health or otherwise of others. It's often in units of uh, measurement in terms of human effort. That's how we measure our faith. And you see it also, I think, uh, when troubles come upon us and we ask, either out loud or in our hearts, I wonder if you've ever asked this, I've asked this, uh, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? There is an implication in that question, isn't there? I deserve better than this. I am worthy of better than this. Well, that's the first delegation's approach to Jesus. This man is worthy. 
but it is an approach that simply does not fit with the gospel that Jesus proclaims and fulfills on the cross. Remember from chapter 4, he has come to announce favour to the poor, favour to needy people, not worthy people. The truth of the gospel shatters our self-worth. In fact, Romans says this, we have together become worthless. That's us. Each of us debtors with no way back. We are like the prodigal son of Luke 15 whose approach to God is simply to say this, I am no longer worthy. Great faith. The type of faith that causes Jesus in verse 9 to say, yes, here at last is honest faith. It has a very different vocabulary. You see it in the words of the second delegation that this man sends to speak on his behalf in verse 6. Let's have a look. And as we do, as we look at this second delegation, there's a, there's a big question. Why does he send a second delegation anyway? I mean, he's already had the first do his job. They've gone, they've asked for favour. Jesus is on the way. It's all working. There's nothing more needs to be said. But can you imagine the scene? Now, these Jewish elders rushing back to tell the centurion, it worked, he's coming. And they tell the, the centurion, we did such a superb job, we made you look brilliant. Does he perhaps feel that they've overcooked the egg? I wonder, as, as Jesus started heading to the centurion's house, did he start to feel a little bit afraid? I think I've overdone it here. It's sort of like the reverse of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, the closer the son gets to his father's home, the more unworthy he feels. This time, the closer Jesus gets to this man's house, the more his worthy claims, his CV, looks pretty hollow. And finally, we're told in verse 6, he can't take it anymore. When Jesus isn't far from his house, he's running out of time, he sends his friends. Now, you've heard all about me, Jesus. You've heard lots about me, but, but that's not me. Uh, not at all. Verse 6, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I'm not worthy to have you come to me, Jesus. Here is clear-sighted faith, which sees Jesus for who he is. Here is a man holding up his worthiness, not against himself or others, but against a true measure of worth, the Son of God whose worthiness was declared by his father in Luke 3, this is my son whom I am well pleased with. He's held up his worthiness against the glorious and holy son of God and his own self-worth is exposed as a, well, a thinly veiled sham. For here, walking to his house, is the Lord of heaven and earth. Who was he thinking he was? Here is the one whom before... Uh, before whom Revelation tells us all creation will one day sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they sing it, as soon as they comprehend what they've just said about this one, they will bow down and worship before him. Now, can you imagine the centurion as this, this one walks towards his house, thinking uh, in the words of Graham Daniels, I've gone the bluff here and it's not going to work. Clear-sighted faith is seen again and again in the scriptures as not some vain claim of worth, but a humble confession of unworthiness before our awesome God. And I reckon here for me is a significant obstacle to great faith. Now, could it be that as Christians we have lost this sense of awe before Jesus? Have we so uh, domesticated him and systematised him and reduced him that he is now manageable? He's just one of us. Well, the true Lord Jesus Christ is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is king. Is that your Jesus?
Authentic faith is rooted in awe of him. Because once you see Jesus for who he is, then you see the logic of the second part of the centurion's response in verse 7. I'm not worthy. You are awesome and mighty and holy and pure and altogether kind and good and well. I, well forget my earlier CV, I'm a sinner. I reckon if we find it hard to view ourselves as a centurion does here, could it be that we have lost a shattering of pride that true exposure of sin causes? Now that's what the holiness of God in Jesus does for us. It should find us out completely, utterly falling short before him. CV? What CV? Before him it's a rap sheet. Have we lost this? Is our faith perhaps uh, too casual? Uh, We must again be able to honestly echo the words of the confession in the book of common prayer that says this, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. I am not worthy. If I won't echo in my heart that, then I won't fully trust Jesus. I don't need to. I still trust myself. But the centurion is desperate to communicate here. Jesus, I've got nothing. Who am I before you? Well, I am unworthy, but I'm asking for favour. A great faith. Faith that pleases Jesus Christ is faith that approaches him empty of pride. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And secondly, and more briefly, here is the second aspect of faith we're shown in these verses. It is to approach Jesus humbly expectant. You see, great faith is not just the shattering of my self-confidence, but having that replaced with complete confidence in him. Confidence in his powerful authority, specifically the authority of his word here. Have a look at verse 7. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. You see, what's amazing about the centurion's faith is not a request of a miracle. Jesus has had plenty of that. A whole town in Capernaum turned up to ask for that. He's not looking for a sign though, the centurion. He just wants a word. Because he is confident that Jesus, the Lord, speaks a word with authority. And so it's a request made from a position of uh, experience of authority. You see that in verse 8. He knows how authority works. He has people under him and when he gives commands, they obey it. He's a centurion, a command of a hundred men. He would have given countless orders in battle. But there's a limit to the power of his word to get things done. He has people over him. In his, his centurion would have been part of a cohort and over that cohort would have been a tribune and over all of them would have been the emperor. And when people like that spoke, uh, this centurion was silent and obeyed. Uh, but here, an enemy has come against his house that has, he has no word of command over. Here is an authority that has come against his house, that is death, that all human authority bows before And they're not alone. We too bow before death. We have no word to call it to go away. We too uh, have no word to defeat this enemy. It is what 1 Corinthians 15 calls our last great enemy. But here is clear-sighted faith. That even as the fear of death grows over this house, this man confidently turns to Jesus and in the face of this horrific enemy charging at his house, he just says to Jesus, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. There's faith. 
Here is faith that sees Jesus for who he is, the one that Hebrews 2 declares as the one who shared our humanity that he might by his death destroy death and free those who all their lives were enslaved by the fear of it. True faith, great faith, trusts Jesus to act decisively by his word. Christchurch Forward is known as a church with an emphasis on God's word. And here you see why. Here is a word that can rescue from death. And here is a word that has power to say to death, stand down. Jesus speaks the final word on death, a word that death has no answer for. And, and this is important. If he speaks the final word on death, does he not also speak the final word on life? True faith is seeing Jesus as a Lord whose word rules all of life. So let me ask you as we head towards a close, is that how you approach Jesus? He has proven how trustworthy his word is, even in your death. Proved his word to you is powerfully committed to your good. So you can trust his word is powerfully committed to your good in all of life, even when we want a different word from him than the one he speaks. What do you expect when Jesus speaks his word to you in a gathering like this, in a small group, as you read his word on your own or with a friend? Let us be those who expect that the word of Jesus Christ is the final word on the matter. I reckon we squirm at that idea. It's not how we like things. We like dialogue, we like compromise, we like different opinions that hang there together. But he is the one, the only one, who can walk into this room and end the speculation. Here is a word that is powerfully committed to our good and it is the final word. The final word on all issues of life, sexuality, money, work, women, bishops, ethics, justice, you name it. True faith is to say on these or any other issues, just say the word, Jesus. We trust it is a good word. And more than just the final word, it is a powerful word as we see in these verses. A word that can change us. A word that can take us from death to life. Trust this word. If his word can raise you from death, consider how good it is to have that word uh, word at work in your life now. Well, let's conclude. Now back to verse 9, the focus of this passage. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Jesus hears this man's faith. I'm not worthy, but just say the word. And he says, ah, look, see, at last, here it is. This is what faith looks like. Approaching Jesus empty-handed, but humbly expectant. Now, somehow God's people, Israel, had lost the simplicity of this. Somehow they had grown increasingly confident in themselves and increasingly unsure in the word of God's promise to them. And I think their drift is a warning to us. But this needy outsider, this centurion, one like us, is a model for us, a hero of the faith. I asked you at the start, do you have a hero of the faith? As we finish, uh, let me tell you of one that came to my mind uh, this week. His name is Bruce. Uh, What else do you expect? He's from Australia. And uh, when I met him, his job at the church I was a part of, he was a welcomer. He had the, the gift of welcoming like none I've ever seen. Incredible. Incredible joy in welcoming newcomers. I suspect in heaven where he is right now, that's his job, welcoming. 
Uh, when I met him, he had been in his life a hugely successful man business-wise, uh, but a man who over many years had been emptied totally of pride. That's not who he was. He wasn't a successful businessman. He was one who had received God's favour. Uh, I had the joy of seeing, if you like, this great renovation project that God had been doing over decades. I saw near the end of the project. Uh, but his wife, Alwyn, would tell me how much had changed over that time, how much pride had been knocked out of him and how much he was dependent on his God. Uh, the man I met walked humbly to the sound of his master's voice. He trusted Jesus in all his life. He was a hero. A life that was reordered by that word. Just say the word. That was Bruce. Now finally I got news a couple of years ago that the time had come for Bruce to trust Jesus with his death. Uh, But when he bowed the knee before death, as we all must, his king said no and raised him back to life. Just say the word. It was incredibly sad to lose a hero of the faith. Uh, But I suspect here is a pretty good replacement. I put it to you that we have in this centurion a man of great faith, a man who doesn't point to himself but points you to Jesus. Now let us pray that we would shape our lives like this one to be those who know we are unworthy uh, but say to Jesus, just say the word. Now let's pray together. Father, we see in this centurion Uh, coming before your son, a model of what true faith, great faith is. We ask that you would again fill us with awe before your son again. He is our king. We would ask that over time you would break the neck of our stubborn pride so that we can receive your favour. And we would ask that we would walk humbly before the sound of your voice, uh, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And we pray this for your honour. And for our good. Amen.